Stay tuned for the Renewable Energy Hour. Good evening, Mendonesia and the World Wide Web. Uh, this is Doug Livingston, and joining me this week, after getting over a nasty, uh, nasty uh, sickness, uh, Chris Love, my uh, special co-host, I call him. Um, hey, Chris, how are you doing? I'm good here. Thanks, Doug. All right. Yourself? All right. You're down in Fort Ross on the edge of cell phone coverage, so uh, so yep. bear with the quality. And uh, and I'm not seeing where to send on email on this Outlook. I used to use Outlook all the time. Anyhow, uh, tonight we have a, a guest. Um, his name is Kevin Kitts. He's a specialist in uh, geothermal. Um, and uh, he he confounds my uh, my common pet peeve of the term geothermal being used in some places where I wish they didn't. Um, historically, geothermal has meant you know pumping water in or letting water that's already down there near very hot rock, drilling a bore down and letting the steam come to the surface and drive steam turbines. And that traditionally has been what geothermal has always meant. And then we started seeing um, a conversion from air-to-air heat pumps, which were relatively common and potentially horrendously inefficient, although they have gotten better. They still have a challenge in front of them of the temperature differences they're working against to what, the, what I like to call ground source heat pumps and, and are commonly, confusingly referred to geothermal heat pumps. Anyhow, uh, Kevin's a professional engineer and geothermal specialist. His company, Kitsworks, helps clients create rapid and large commercial investment opportunities in geothermal energy using innovative approaches to existing technologies. He's been a specialist in geothermal development for over 35 years and has encompassed the gamut of geothermal power industry from subsurface to the power plant and contract negotiation. He's been involved in innovative projects to develop synthetic geothermal reservoirs, which is something I don't know about, so we may want to talk about that tonight. Power plant uh, cooling systems, uh, I think in particular eliminating the use of water, um, and hybrids with concentrating solar heat. His most recent area of innovation, and what brought me to him in the first place, is in geothermal heat pump systems, the place where I got sort of a pet peeve about the use of the geothermal term, uh, but his is sort of straddling the divide between the two technologies. The new approach stores grid energy efficiently and manages both cost and CO2 on the grid. It is highly applicable as a multi-billion dollar investment opportunity across the U.S. and the world and can also lower consumer power rates. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, I look forward to uh, to the discussion. I'm uh, I'm based in Boise, Idaho, so uh, it, it's um, very it's uh, very uh, odd dialing your phone number because my brother also lives in Boise and seeing the 208 area code. Yep, yep, and I I have a long connection to the area. I went to school at UC Davis and uh, lived in Santa Rosa for a long time. Yeah, and you've done work um, at so. at the Geysers in in Sonoma County, right? Yep, yep, many years there as well. All right. Um, well, on uh, on this show, we I have 
sort of ranted on numerous occasions about the need to overbuild solar and wind. Right now we're getting to the point in California where there's enough solar installed that it's really meeting the demand at the time the sun is shining. And we're starting to see a drop off in in investments in, in new solar because the plants are going to have to turn themselves off periodically when the demand is not as high as the solar supply. And so we've had a number of shows over the past several years on on how to take that excess energy and allow us to keep building more solar so we can get, you know, 100% of our grid on renewable energy uh, by taking that excess renewable energy production when it's not needed and using it in a way that can be used later. We've had shows on a couple different forms of gravitational storage, like big massive you know stone pistons being raised and lowered hydraulically and generating power when the piston is allowed to fall slowly um, hydraulically through a turbine we've we've talked about you know pumping water back up into the reservoir and using the hydro again we've talked about weight systems of uh, some European companies raising and lowering weights uh, and 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 something I thought you know, should be a reasonable idea is at these big utility-scale solar power plants to install uh, uh, electrolysis, hydrogen-generating stations that could take the excess electricity from the solar plant when it's not needed and generate hydrogen and then turn around and burn that in a essentially a, a natural gas turbine with slight modifications for hydrogen to create power when the solar and wind are not keeping up. And Kevin, your your uh, what brought me to you was this uh, heat pump reservoir. Uh, can you describe what you're talking about there? Yeah, I think that um, that you're technically correct that uh, ground source heat pump is accurate, um, but it's also it's not easy a, to understand. I was thinking it's not as sexy. It's a marketing term to call it geothermal heat pump. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, tomato, tomato in many ways. Yeah, yeah, I've got I've gotten over it. <laughs> good, that's good. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you're able to get there. Um, I, I'm indifferent as an engineer. I I kind of like geothermal I ground source, but but let's just go with geothermal for the show. And and I think that what's interesting is that there are a, there's at least a couple of really different ways. Uh, three, maybe uh, four, even different ways that the ground that that the earth can be used to actually store uh, solar energy, wind energy, um, excess grid energy, or excess uh, solar thermal energy. And what's so fascinating about the ground is, of course, that uh, everywhere we look, we can find some, <laughs> and. Um, it's a pretty much a universal resource. Um, it's there uh, day and night, um, and it's uh, it can be fairly inexpensive to access it. Um, and so it, it hits a lot of the things that that we really need to do to bring technologies together and achieve full building and grid decarbonization and. And what uh, particularly excites me about geothermal heat pumps is that 
I feel like they really get at the root cause of our problems, which is the reliance, our belief that there's an essentially inexhaustible supply of cheap energy, and therefore we don't have to really be efficient in the way we use it. I mean, we don't have to worry about the consequences of the way we use it. And so what's what's great about geothermal heat pumps is that, you know, I have no desire to be my own personal utility. Most people, I think, don't. But geothermal heat pumps, um, especially coupled with energy storage in the way that I'm looking at doing it, gives gives us all the ability to really be much more efficient users of energy and in the way that we've the way it changes the shape of the energy that we use, it also makes grid decarbonization, building decarbonization, both easier and cheaper. Now, what do you mean by changing the shape of the energy we use? Right. So right now, um, most homes and businesses in the U.S. Um, have a shape that is they use a lot of energy when it's hot, in this, a lot of electricity in the, in the summer when it's hot, uh, they don't use very much in the shoulder seasons of electricity or gas. And then when winter comes, they continue to use very little electricity, but now they use a lot of natural gas. And so we don't get very much use out of our electric system. We create this very – so we when we try to cool off a building now, of course, Mendocino, uh, not so much, but Sacramento, Los Angeles – uh, Riverside County, you know, Texas, we're, we're trying to use really hot air to cool a building. And as you already pointed out, that big temperature difference is intrinsically inefficient. No amount of technology will ever improve that. That's physics that makes that inefficient. Um, and so the solution that geothermal heat pumps bring is that they completely change the shape and form of the energy that we use. So in summer, at the so when we build the electric grid, we have to meet the load at the very peak hour. So the amount of capacity that we build, whether it's gas turbine power plants in the old days or batteries today in conjunction with solar and other all the other generating assets, we have to hit hit that peak hour. And that peak hour is driven across the country by the high air temperatures that occur. Um, uh, and so... Lar- largely you know, largely due capacity. to air conditioning, right? Air conditioning, right. And so um, we're using and- hot air to make a cool building, and that's inefficient. So instead, we can use geothermal heat pumps. And when you use a geothermal heat pump, it cuts the peak demand for air conditioning by about 50%. Because so because the why? ground the ground temperatures at at sixty degrees or something instead of the hundred that's outside, right? Or even if it's warm, even if the ground has warmed up over the course of the summer to eighty degrees or even ninety degrees, water is still a better heat transfer fluid. And and it's very simple in your kitchen to or to think about your kitchen and prove this to yourself. Take two potatoes, put one in an oven at three hundred fifty or four hundred degrees, one in a pot of boiling water, you know, you get much, the, the boiled potato cooks much faster than the oven potato. And the other evidence of that is, is you can reach into the oven 
with your bare hand, and even though the oven's at 350 and you're fine, but you cannot put your hand into the boiling water. Okay. And that's that hand example is the efficiency of heat transfer of water versus air. And so when we switch to a geothermal heat pump, which is circulating cool water through the ground, we get two benefits. One is a lower temperature, and two is better heat transfer properties. Uh, assuming, your, so that cuts, assuming your soil has water in it. No, we don't need, uh, it's a closed loop system. So there's loops of plastic in the ground and we circulate water but, through the pipe in the ground. But the soil's way better at transferring heat if it's moist. Oh yeah, for sure. There's a range there. So yeah, dry yeah. soil is not as good as, as moist soil. Right, right. That's um, how and, a, and a lake is better than, than moist soil. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's just a matter of more plastic pipe if the soil is dry versus wet. Mm-hmm. Um, the economic, but the but the benefit is there. So first we've cut we've cut our peak. So that's cutting the peak, and then well, and then we we had this conversation uh, yesterday that solar has already cut the peak. What you're referring wanting to get to is the net peak. Can you describe the distinction? Yeah, so net peak is a utility term that describes uh, the so uh, that describes the need for power after the sun sets. So the net refers to the shape of the demand of it, it's uh, applicable to a house or to the entire grid. It's the shape of the electric demand after you've subtracted solar out of it. So. Um, you know, uh, for a house with solar panels on the roof, um, you know, it, it goes negative uh, in the middle of the day if, if there's no demand on the house. But that, but that demand for electricity when the air conditioner is still running and the, and the sun is at a low angle or has set, um, that's, that's the net peak that's left over. Yeah, so and, in, in Cal- that's, California, our biggest challenge is, you know, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. weekdays. Nowadays, because of solar power, yes, exactly. Um, that's in the summer. But if we electrify um, building heating, then where we start to develop a, a bit of a problem, and that problem is, is that the winter peak load occurs before sunrise and after sunset, and so. Uh, and of course, solar produces uh, it produces less hours, and it produces less total power per day, um, and even per hour typically. So, as of course you know, um, mm-hmm. and so matching that that shape. So, if we use just as the as the worst possible situation, if we use electric resistance heaters, you know, we have to have we have to be able to deliver huge amounts of electricity to meet the to meet the building demands. Which, so that's why which is one reason why heat. most people currently heat with natural gas. Right, because natural gas is cheaper if you ignore all the externalities that it's uh costing our planet um over the long term. Mhm. Um, or even over now the relatively short term. But are are you like so, are you like Washington you know. and and Oregon in in that your unusually high percentage of electric space heating 
In, no. in Idaho? Um, no. No, most of the country, except for the Pacific. The, the Pacific Northwest is, because of Bonneville is, yeah, and I, the, the it, amount of hydro, is one of the very few places in the country that really relies on electric heating. And the fact that it has a mild climate, of course, relatively mild climate helps. And, and so in a mild climate, an air source heat pump can be very good. So an air source heat pump takes, uh, well, any heat pump, and we all own heat pumps. So a refrigerator is a heat pump. A heat pump moves heat from one space to another space. So a refrigerator moves heat from the inside of the box to the outside of the box. An air conditioning unit is a heat pump. It moves heat from inside the building to outside the building. And when we say heat pump for heating, we're talking about gathering heat from outside of the building and moving it and pumping it into the inside of the building to provide heat to the building. And so an air source heat pump, um, of which I have both solar panels and an air source heat pump on my house, so that helps me decarbonize. I use only, even though, I, even though it was 8 degrees Fahrenheit last week, um, I was using gas then, but whenever it's 40 degrees to 60 degrees, which it's a lot of the time. I'm using my air source heat pump um, uh, and often directly my solar power to heat my house. Um, and that's, that's good, but I'm switching to gas. And our goal really in decarbonization is to get rid of gas altogether. And so if we try to do it only with an air source heat pump, what happens is that when it's eight degrees, um, most air source heat pumps won't pump heat out of the air anymore. I mean, it's cold outside, right? right. It's eight outside, it's, it's 70 inside, the refrigerant has to be hotter in the building and colder outside to transfer heat. So we're talking about close to 100 degrees of temperature difference. So a geothermal heat pump is only going to have 30 or 40 degrees of temperature difference that it's trying to cover. And so it operates more efficiently and has the benefit of that of that water, um, and so um, it will, in the, if an air source heat pump can switches over to electric resistance heating in the very cold weather, and you compare that, that winter peak, again, those very coldest hours, with the amount of electricity that's needed by a geothermal heat pump, it's a four, it's a, it's a, it's a 75% reduction. So in summer, we get a 50% reduction, in winter, we can get up to a 75% reduction by using geothermal heat pumps. So we're trimming, so we've trimmed the summer peak, we've trimmed the winter peak, and we filled in the valley in between in that moderate temperature range. And, and that makes a, an electric grid much more cost effective. Think about it as, as paying them more, the, the, the amount of power that you sell isn't profit to the power company. It's how they pay the mortgage on the equipment that they bought and installed for all of our benefits. And so the more power we sell, the, cheap, the less they need to charge for the power to recover those capital costs. And so improving power factors or load factors technically on the grid lowers everybody's costs. And, and so that's a real benefit. It changes the shape 
of the electric demand. And it, of course, it very much changes the shape of gas demand because gas goes away and we decarbonize. Now, do you talk about, uh, you know, large-scale warming up of the ground over seasons to to take advantage of the warmer temperature or the colder temperature in another season? Well, yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's what, uh, in, in a balanced climate, so Boise, as an example, or um, even Sacramento, um, many cities have both a heating season and a cooling season. And so you pull heat out of the ground in the winter, that cools the ground, and then that makes the geothermal heat pump more efficient in the summer because now it's working, now it's it's taking heat from the building and putting it into cold ground. That makes it more efficient. The heat from the building that went in now becomes the heat that's drawn back out in the summer. But how do you get the heat to stick around or the cool to stick around for so long? Or are you going super deep in... In these no, cases. no, it's a, it's a good question, and and the and the answer is is it's not very it's not a very efficient storage mechanism. So you lose. So if you're heating up the ground in the summer, a lot of that heat is going to dissipate away and be lost. Now that's okay because we can we can make it up with lower temperature heat that that flows in over the winter. But the technology that I'm working on um, actually uses the ground as a thermal battery. So all the, if we, cold isn't technically a physical right. quantity like heat. I, I, I'm, but, a, I'm, I'm my degrees in physics. I cringe whenever I talk about moving cold. Yes, but it's easy to understand. So let's, again, let's just. What's that, Chris? It is the lack of yeah, cold is but we lack can, of heat. Lack of heat, yes. Yeah. Yes, lack of heat. So, yeah, you but we can to make, eventually you reach absolute zero and you're done. You're done. That's all that you're going to get. But we can talk about store. We can talk about storing coals, which, which in reality means going to a space and removing the heat from it. But it's also easy to understand that if I'm if I've got a refrigeration unit and it's making cold, then I'm going to store that cold in the ground. It's um, some people find it easier. We to think of it that way, um, but in in this case, if we focus on building heating first, just to make it to avoid this uh, very geeky conversation we're having here. <laughs> oh, we do it every every show. Okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> for, for those who don't want to geek out with the engineers and physicists, let's just talk about heat. So let's say we've got a heating climate. So let's say Tahoe. Um, so Tahoe doesn't have much of a cooling uh, demand for buildings in the summer. And so, um, so what happens on a big system is that over time, you draw all the heat not only out of the ground around immediately where the geothermal heat pump loops are, but you draw the heat out of the ground from a very long, you know, fairly large distance such that the efficiency and capacity of the system drop over time and the building can no longer be heated. In Arizona, it's exactly the same problem. You put so much heat into the ground that you really can't put any more in there efficiently. And again, the, the ground saturates and can no longer do 
the building comfort uh, heating and air conditioning that it was designed to do. So the, the system that I'm thinking of is meant to integrate with um, solar power and, uh, and wind power and to store it when, when it is more efficient to do so. So because the ground can be used to hold heat, so instead of, we, we rearranged the geothermal borehole. So this is a, a borehole, and in, in, as we're talking about it, it's a loop of plastic pipe in a vertical hole in the ground, and then the hole is grouted, and so there's this loop of plastic pipe that goes down through the ground. The water, there's no flow into or out of the rock, the ground, uh, beyond the borehole, all of the flow is only in the plastic pipe, and the the heat doesn't move by f water flowing into the well or out of the well. It it's just the flow of water in the plastic pipe. So it's conductive heat transfer. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, the usual way to do this is to try to get this heat to move away from the boreholes and out into the great big world. Um, and then to try to get some of it back later, let's say. But in this system, which is called a borehole thermal energy system, I'll call it a BTES, um, we are going to, if we're in the heat, if we're at Tahoe and we're trying to put heat in the ground, we're gonna, all the heat that we're gonna get out in the winter, we're gonna put into the ground first. So we're not gonna use the cold ground that's, that's native to, Tahoe, we're going to put heat in the ground. Well, where is that heat going to come from? Well, where it's going to come from is is unneeded solar power. So we're going to run. So Tahoe in in this summer and in the fall, the ground the air is warm, and an air source heat pump, so a heat pump that pulls heat from the air, is going to be very efficient because the air is warm. So we can put in one unit of electricity into the heat pump, one kilowatt hour of heat into the heat pump, and we can put three or three and a half um, uh, kilowatt hours of thermal heat into the ground. And so, and we can, we, and because of the way we've designed this ground system, which I don't want to get into the details, um, since we're on radio, this needs a picture. Um, the way we design this system, it's designed to retain that heat and to be very efficient in the way it retains its heat. More than 85% of the heat that we put into the ground, we can get back. And I'm working on designs that should take it even further than that. Six months later? So, six months later, this is the thing. We can store heat in Tahoe in June, and we can recover it in January. And, and, so, and the opposite, cool the heat right. in Phoenix. And, exactly. And, and, we can store heat in, in September in Phoenix, and we can recover it in August. So, you know, or, you know. June. And, and, and we can do this, yeah, June, and we can do this diurnally as well. So just like a regular electrochemical battery. So in Boise, and this is, it's, it's looking out this window in front of my house right now that I'm thinking about this years ago, and I'm thinking, well, I don't want to drill all those holes. How could I, how could I do this? And I started thinking, well, it's, it's cool at night um, in the summer, and it's warm uh, during the day, 
in the winter, gosh, it'd be nice if I could sort of use that to my advantage. And the answer, the answer that I came up with was to use an air source heat pump, um, and to, and and so to take this off-peak energy and and take advantage of the temperature differences that occur. So even in Texas, where it doesn't cool off as much, it's still cooler at night. The load on the grid is lower at night, and the wind is blowing at night in Texas. And so we can store we can store wind energy at night as sorry, Chris, as cold in the ground. Um, and then we can recover it later that day. And that, re that further reduces the cost of the geothermal heat pump system because we're cycling all this. We're, we're taking heat out of the ground when it, is, when it is advantageous from the grid and the air temperature perspective to do that instead of being forced to take energy heat out of the building during the heat of the day when power is both high carbon and um, expensive. So these are the ways that we both decarbonize the grid and lower the cost of the grid. And I was, uh, so, you know, on your home you were using an air source heat pump at night? Well, this was the, this was the genesis of the idea. Right. I, I, you never I, did that. So everybody, I never did that. Everybody who works in the geothermal power industry, I mean almost everybody, has thought to themselves, "Gee, it'd be great to have a geothermal heat pump in my house." And uh, they look into it, which I did two or three times, and every time I've come back and said, "I just, I just can't afford that. Gas is too cheap, and electricity is more expensive." Um, and, and this is the next big issue, is that when we look at the cost of a system, we tend to look at it from a building perspective cost. Well, if I put in a, an air source heat pump or a geothermal heat pump, how does that compare to me buying gas? And that's the end of, that's the, that's the, end of the economics. But we just talked about how when we put in an air source heat pump, we're going to have to build even more grid capacity than we need for summer. And that is going to be a huge cost. We're not, so with geothermal heat pumps, one of the things that's very interesting is that the biggest value driver for a geothermal heat pump is not the building economics, it's the grid economics. And, and, and so I've been, I'm a, I work as a consultant to the DOE, and this information was presented at a, at a webinar a few months ago um, re reporting the progress of this project. But this project is finding that, that it, across the country, if geothermal heat pumps were deployed everywhere, it would generate, it would, it would require, uh, like, many hundreds of thousands of megawatts of PV, wind, hydrogen gas turbines, batteries to never have to be built, for thousands of miles of transmission system to never have to be built. And these are huge dollars. I mean, you know, really, really big um 
cost impacts to the grid. And that's even ignoring the fact that having done that, we've essentially completely decarbonized building heating while we achieved lower grid costs. No. So um, this it's really important to look at the, the overall system costs and not just some single component of the cost. Right. As, as of course, you're, as we talked yesterday about the people who are, you know, who live off grid, and, and of course, they are very aware of this fact. Of the seasonal the and integrated, diurnal. The integrated cost is what matters, not the individual component cost. <laughs> Yeah, the whole package price. Yeah. I, I I had an interesting experience with a solar class I was teaching years ago, when when I was talking about what the typical wattage rating of the solar array is as a ratio with the the inverters rating, and typically the solar wattage rating was significantly higher than the inverter rating that was expected to process it, mostly because the solar was rated under non-realistic conditions and was typically, you know, at least 15% lower than what it said on its nameplate in real-world operating conditions, and, uh, and discussed the range that was typically used by designers of, for that ratio. And, and I asked, uh, you know, there were a couple of guys in the class from a big, huge... Uh, utility-scale power plant company having some of their employees trained in the broader world of solar and asked them, what, you know, what ratio do you guys use? And they said they didn't know, but they called at lunchtime back to, you know, one of the engineers, and, and they came back with an answer that was hugely higher than anything I'd ever heard of. And, and I said, oh, my God, they're wasting, you know, a, at least a third of their solar power production by doing that. The inverter's going to be clipping off that power. And I said, why do they do that? And he said, I don't know, and called back on a break and, and got the answer. It was that the, you, the transmission line from the solar power plant to the rest of the transmission system that they had to put in was so expensive and only had a certain capacity that they were trying to maximize the use of its capacity. That was more expensive of an investment than the whole solar plant. And so, you know, they were perfectly willing to chop off the peak in the middle of the day to get a consistent amount of production through a wider window during the day. Yeah. And transmission is expensive. Very right. Yeah, that's and that's part of the the issue is we have a very old grid in a lot of our country, and that much of it was built fifty and seventy years ago. And some of the things that caused fires in California, hardware that had never been replaced from when it was originally installed. You know, um, but well, Kevin, Kevin would call most of our problems on the distribution lines, not the transmission lines. Right. The the. The super high voltage stuff he he talks of as transmission lines and and the lower voltage stuff you know fifteen thousand volts and things that's those are but the, distribution lines going, right yeah going back to what yeah. you were saying Kevin though is I've I've read a few articles that have that have hinted towards getting real concepts of you know fully electrifying the entire grid especially with electric cars coming and the how much more distribution, well, really transmission 
to large resources that are going to have to be built that don't exist now and to expand many of the transmission lines. Like we have real problems here in Northern California because of that, you know, where the larger lines are coming in, but the, that some of the estimates are in the, you know, five to $10 trillion that would have to go into the electrical infrastructure to move the added electrical load that's being discussed. Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought that up. And and this DOE study is uh, indicating that the amount of transmission that is needed just to electrify the grid can be cut by about a third um, by using geothermal heat pumps. So if and then really how how is that the, possible? Because a lot of people would be shifting from heating with natural gas to heating with electricity. Because a geothermal heat pump, a properly designed geothermal heat pump, has a lower winter peak load than the current inefficient air conditioners we all have. So, so it's mostly doing the savings in the summertime. No, it means that it means that we if we use an air source heat pump and we uh, allow those air oh, source heat oh, I to see. Be spec so that they convert so that that's not even with so it's a third if if we um if we just electrify, if we just decarbonize the grid, if we try to decarbonize the economy, including um, including electrifying building heating, I'm going to guess that it, uh, the study hasn't been done, but just from what I can see so far, I'm going to guess that the cost of the interstate transmission system is going to be cut by 50% or more compared to what it would be if we electrify with conventional air source heat pumps. And are you are you and, are you looking at, you know, all the inclination lately to convert transportation to electricity and cooking to electricity and Well, there's there's a really interesting study if you want to that is already out. It's a study of electrification of of building heating um uh, that was done by Rhode Island um, in 2019. Um, and what it showed is that if you electrify with, and I don't think they did their geothermal heat pump study right, but even just taking it at face value, they said that they were going to need to add something like uh, six or seven megawatts to electrify transportation between now and 2050. So, uh, six to ten gigawatts, yeah, so six thousand six, 6, megawatts. So that's big, and there's only a million people in in Rhode Island now. Of course, there's a lot of businesses and people traveling there for blah 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 blah. But if we and then if you go to G and then if you go to geothermal heat pumps, you have to add, according to their study, you have to add another seven thousand megawatts of generating capacity. But then if you if instead of going to geothermal heat pumps with a 7000 megawatt capacity addition you want to go to air source heat pumps that convert over to electric resistance heat when it's really really cold or not even that cold fairly cold 
then you need to add 33,000 uh-huh. megawatts of capacity for Rhode Island's 1 million people, which turns out to be uh, a payment that every citizen has to make of $3,000. You know, if I, if I sort of grind the numbers a little bit, I would estimate $3,000 per person per year, basically forever to pay for that. Hey, we have- well, for $3,000 per year, we could just put in geothermal heat pumps yep. and <laughs> give them away. Well, when I did my my number crunching, you know, I, I quickly concluded it was well worth doing a ground source heat pump if your climate was extreme and uh, and a little more challenging the less extreme your climate was. So I'm surprised you didn't conclude it was useful in Boise, though, or it was affordable. Uh, well, it was just, it's, it's because nobody was paying me for the utilities for the grid value that I yeah. was creating. Yeah, all right. If, if they did that, then I would probably have it. And that's, I think, where we need to go. I think that's, I think that's what Sonoma Clean Power, how they could really create um, lower-cost power for their customers compared to their competitor, PG&E, is, is geothermal heat pumps would allow them to offer lower-cost power even if they gave away the geothermal heat pump. Hey, so, um, we've, been, we've been getting multiple people calling in before I've opened up the lines. Yeah. And we've got about 15 minutes left. Do you mind if we open up the lines at this point? I, yeah, that sounds one, great. Let's do it. Point. Can I make one point to this real quick? Fire away, Chris. You know, I think kind of what's being is that we have a scale issue. And that for the individual right now, you know, these systems are pretty expensive for one house. But, say, for right. a neighborhood, this could be a really grand thing done as a neighborhood or a group, you know, in a homeowners association or whatever that could, you know, build out a heating system like what they have in Ukraine in Northern Europe, and that this is how they heat buildings. For the you know, city like of Phoenix. Around in pipes. Put it outside of the city and don't create a heat island. Anyhow, we have a patient caller waiting in the wings. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Oh, thanks. It's always nice to be alive. <laughs> um, wonderful show. Fascinating. And I think everything your guest is talking about is reducing loads on the grid and not ne- not necessarily producing watts to an overloaded grid, but maybe reducing that load. on. Um, but one thing I wanted to hear about was this uh, device called a mini-split that's really popular now where you... Uh, bolt this thing onto your upper wall. It looks kind of like an igloo ice chest. And then there's some pipes that go down to a, um, a little pad on the on the outside ground. And Does that fit into heat pump at all? That's definitely a heat pump, uh, but it's an air source heat pump typically. Yeah. So anyway, I'd like to hear your, your guest uh, hit on that. So great show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it it is since it's an air source heat pump, uh, Kevin, would you agree it it's a uh, a reasonable option in a relatively mild climate, but more challenging in a in a more extreme climate? Yeah, and and that's it, it, the physics are that it it will always it will always be require more power, and and. And yet, it's it's going to be more cost effective for an individual homeowner if the utility ignores the impact 
of of the of heating system that it has on the on the cost of delivering power on the grid. And so, um, those are those are fantastic. Uh, they're super efficient. But the other point is is that those are are really those can be super efficient machines for their technology. And the reason that they're so super efficient is because they're made by the gabillions around the world. So, and geothermal heat pumps are not. And so they're, geothermal heat pumps are not as technologically advanced, not because they can't be, but because there just isn't the market like demand. Time. So Chris's point about, about going into a neighborhood, one, that reduces the cost by half, as I've, as I've examined it, and two, it creates a demand that drives the technology and lowers price and improves improves performance. So, great great question. It's it's uh, it's good. Uh, good good one. We we like them off the grid because well, one of the reasons they're so efficient is they use a variable speed, a variable frequency right. drive compressor, and right. that that eliminates the huge surge that no compressors are notorious for, which is huge off the grid where it's got to come from your inverter and it's challenging, um, but also can vary the rate that the motor runs in a way that a regular old school compressor couldn't. Anyhow, we have a very right. patient caller silently waiting on the air. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Oh, great. Really interesting show. Thanks very much, guys. And uh, but I have a couple questions about just straight up solar arrays, solar inverter systems, because we got till April 13th to get these applications in if we want to stay on our level two system for reimbursement from yeah. the NEM2, they I'm call up, it. Yeah, EM2. I'm up in Willet, mm -hmm. North Slope Ridge, 2,000 feet elevation. I'm looking, I have a pretty good sized house and shop that's using maybe $500 a month plus in electricity. I'm also looking at the future of electric cars coming, so I'm trying to get in a big enough array that it may actually do something. So I'm looking at 20 kW. The last one I put in was a 10 kW. And that's not here. That's in a house I used to have. And what so year did you put that in? What's that? What year was that? Long time ago, it was BP-160, 74 of them. I bet you that the 20K system will cost about the same. That's good news. <laughs> I'm on a really short... well, let me ask you a couple questions here. Inverters-wise, I've been looking at the difference between I want to be able to do battery backup or have potentially have power when the grid's down because mm -hmm. I've suffered a little. So I'm looking at the IQ8 from Enphase, or uh, SMA has, is coming out with one mid-2023 that they call their Smart Energy, and they make it 11.4, which means I could use two of those as string inverters. And so I'm kind of like balancing those two at this point. And so I'm just kind of curious if you got an opinion either way on those. And let me ask a couple other questions really quick. All right. What does Mendocino County normally use as ASCE? Do they use the 7-8 or the 7-16? Chris, do you know the answer 16. to that? 16? 16. Yeah, the 7 7 and that's, that's been gone for a while now. Okay. So. The other question then and if you is, if you're trying to get a solar system approved by April... You're going to have to use equipment that's already on the approved list, so don't hang around for anything years, new coming. I got three years to build the system. Yeah, but they allow a certain amount of substitution for things that become obsolete by the time you build it. 
so they're allowing a certain amount of uh, flexibility. As long as you don't change the size of the inverter by more than 10%. Right. Right. If you so get I'm approved at, before April 13th, they're saying they're going to give you three years to build the system. Yeah, approved with a utility, a utility application that's approved. And I believe they want to see a signed contract with an installer. Right. They, they are asking for that, but there is a way that you enter the information where that's not required. Okay. I forget what the workaround is, but there is a workaround. You just state something differently, and then you don't have to answer Well, that. I believe there's some sort of open window for an owner-builder, and maybe that's, that's where right. the workaround is. That's right. Okay, so as far as what, do they, what does Mendocino County require for snow load around here? Depends on where you are. Nothing on the coast. Elevation mostly. I'm at 2,030 feet of elevation. And probably, you know, probably not much. Yeah, probably just 10. Okay, 10 roughly 10. Yeah, what 10 do they normally talk? Foot. What do they want for uh, wind speed around here? Again, you know, they, you know, the building department does have a page that has all the design keys for it. Um, and then I, you know, it depends on where your okay. area is specifically, you know, because you could be up to 130 or 140 depending on, you know, your particular yeah. mountain. Well, I'm not on flat ground or over water yeah. or anything. There's trees and mountains and everything around me, so that knocks me down a little bit. Yep, that'll knock you down substantially. Yeah. Okay. Then just a couple other quick sort of. Be questions. be quick. We got a specialist. Yeah, we got a specialist, Sam. You guys got an opinion between ground screws and concrete for putting in uh, ground mount arrays like iron ridges or something like that? Screws are way easier if you can get the machine in there. I have excavators, backhoes, all those kind of things. Oh, ground There's screws monitors. are specialized equipment, so, you know, if you can but, I mean, I have like and and things. Okay. You guys got an opinion on building these things with two-inch versus three-inch pipe? Depends on the spans you want to go and what your wind load requirements are and things like that. That's why I asked you wind load first. Yeah, I'm talking about going five high and then going uh, ten wide. Well, they, they have lots of pre-engineered systems that should meet most. Yeah, you, can yeah, do you have you to go through more holes. You know, Iron Ridge has a design assistant uh, you could use to dig through that. Yeah, yeah, I've done that already, and they ask you, do you want to use two inch or three inch? If you use two inch, you drill more holes. Yeah. If you do three yeah, inch, so you drill less holes. It allows you to look at the you know pre-engineered drawing, you know, so you can kind of then you have to gauge, you know, what are the cost of materials, you know, versus doing right. one way or the other. Yeah, if you so can if you can drill with, those you know, holes easily. Because you got the equipment, you got augers, right. and yes, they do. and and then then for you the labor of those holes is less. And look at the price difference between the two inch and three inch pipe. The three inch pipe was just astronomical not too long ago. I don't know where it's at now. I mean, yeah, basically I drill the holes for the price of the diesel to run my excavator. All right, we All should. Right. Well, that sounds great. Did you guys have an opinion on using microinverters versus string inverters? Either one, and needing to be able to do islanding, or you know, grid goes down. That only leaves you IQ8 from end phase and sunny. Boy, I mean, it really depends on the whole system design, you know, and matching equipment and what integrates and what doesn't, you know, and the, you gotta 
either just stick with one type of system or you got to know what's agnostic. You know, there's a lot of different choices. There are a lot of choices. The last system I put in, we used four Sunny Boy 2500s for that 10KW system. And then we had an Uh issue with we only had our solar panel, I mean, our our service entrance was 200 amp and wasn't solar ready at the time. So we were only allowed to put a 40 amp circuit breaker on it. Mm -hmm. We never popped that circuit breaker. So, um, you know, I just don't know with this. I might have to try. I have three meters out there. You shouldn't have put 10 kilowatts on it on a 40 amp breaker okay so when i say 10 kilowatts that well i mean it never pops the breaker so what does that tell us uh because you hey, I'm... yeah well Hi. i'm not sure i'm back on it oh were you were that. you gone for a second i didn't even realize that anyhow caller we we've got a a, a guest expert on a different topic and i'd like to move on all right hey well, thanks, guys. sure enough take care we just got just a couple more minutes, and we do have other people who were trying to call and hopefully are on topic. Oh, that one had been hanging too long, probably. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Are you there, caller? I don't get a dial tone. Whoops. I can hear them hanging up. Um, yeah, Kevin, I'm wondering, is there is there a good resource line where people could go and look at the diagrams and see, you know, the energy flow characteristics of these integrated systems, you know, and kind of um, overall. And, and any other yeah. good websites and info centers? Um, well, the best, the best way is if you, um, if you, my name is Kevin Kitts, K-I-T-Z, um, there's one other Kevin Kitts in San Diego, but the, we're the only two, as far as I know. So if it's about geothermal, you'll you can track me track me down that way. Um, and if the the system that I'm talking about that does that's for energy storage, um, I call it uh, Gabe's G A B E S S, which stands for in typical engineer fashion. Grid Amplified Building Energy Seasonal Storage, so GABES. Um, and if you search that phrase, you there. I've had a couple of YouTube videos, webinars, and uh, might be able to find some papers as well, but certainly contact me that way. Okay. Grid Amplified Building Energy Seasonal Storage? G-A-B-E-S. Yeah. F. Okay. F, no S, yes, yes. Storage. Two S's. S yeah. S. Okay, okay. Well, we're we're actually coming up to the end of the show, and Kevin, I want to thank you for spending an hour with us and helping educate us down here in Mendonesia, near near territory <laughs> you are familiar with. Uh, actually, when we say Mendonesia, we're kind of including Sonoma and Humboldt and areas around us. Cool. Um, but but good luck on on getting this idea out there and and anything that can get us to not hit a wall in terms of putting in more renewable energy, more power to you. Yeah, I hope we can also all find uh, integrative solutions that work and and get us to that decarbonization goal that that is so important. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Doug, and thanks, Chris. All right, and good night, everybody else. We'll be back in another two weeks, uh, and you can tune in in this time slot in the 
next week for our alternate Geek Hour radio show, Point and Click. But we'll be back in two weeks. We'll see you then. Good night, everybody. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.